Somebody asked me one time uh, if I really had a, a long-term plan for what I was going to, to preach, and the answer is not really. Uh, I try to, you know, connect things a little bit so that they make sense and build off each other. Uh, you know, we started with the, the most important thing that I could think of, you know, of any way to share, and that is uh, the word of the gospel. Uh, they'll work through some of what the church is and what the church does and, you know, how we behave as the church. Uh, and then uh, if some of you may re remember, we're currently talking about the greatest enemy that the church has, uh, Satan, how he seeks to destroy uh, God's people. He knows that he's lost the battle, but will continue raging until the Lord returns. Uh, today we'll be continuing some of that. Uh, I'll read a, a passage out of Revelation 12 and then uh, elaborate more on what we're talking about. Uh, but I'll go ahead and pray again because I can't do anything without the Lord, and I'd rather he be speaking than myself. Uh, Father God, we thank you and we praise you for this day, uh, for the chance that we have as believers to come into your presence, uh, to worship you together, to fellowship, uh, and to learn from your word. I pray that you would anoint my lips, allow me to speak only your word and not my own. Lord, that your truth would be seen and that your message would reach your people. Lord, that we'd be equipped and prepared to face the battles in our own life uh, and to stand against the enemy who would destroy us. Lord, we know that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and the forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Lord, we know that we do not gain the victory by our own strength, Lord, but the victory is found in you. We pray that you would be with us, that you would guide us and direct us all uh, in your son's name. Amen. Revelation 12, uh, again, verses 10 and 11. We've been over this a couple times. It says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives even unto death. In the whole chapter of Revelation 12, we saw that Satan, who is aware that he will lose the war for this earth and all the, at the moment of our Christ's return, seeks to use every moment that he has left to destroy the church and the followers of Christ. Uh, at the very end of last year, uh, we looked at how Satan accuses believers and though his accusations, however true, hold no power over those who are in Christ. Because in freedom, Christ has set us free. Uh, and his accusations hold no power over those for whom Jesus died. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son and the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin to the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That we in our own power cannot live up to the standard of God's righteousness, that Satan's accusations hold true that we are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God, but in Christ Jesus that doesn't matter. Because if we have accepted his gift of salvation, there is nothing, no accusation that can stand against us because we are standing in the presence and in the name and the blood of Christ Jesus. 
Today, we'll look at another way that Satan tries to destroy the faith of God's people through discouragement and how we combat that fear through the testimony of God's work in our lives. Uh, we'll look at Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, for an example uh, of this discouragement through the lives of God's people, uh, the Israelites. For a little bit of context, uh, God led his people up out of Egypt. He delivered them from slavery, led them through the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh's armies, and gave them manna from heaven to feed them in the wilderness, just, in uh, just before there in chapter 16. And then here in chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, it says that all the congregation of the people of Israel had moved on from the wilderness of Sinai by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water there for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt just to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Although God had provided for his people in, his, in the wilderness, this is one of just many examples where, when faced with the one thing that they didn't have, they forgot all the things that God had already done for them. They had just been given matter to eat in the previous chapter, and here again they're complaining that things were better off in Egypt. Is the Lord among us or not, they ask, as though he were not leading them by a pillar of fire and cloud and performing regular miracles in their presence. There's a common saying that the greatest trick of the devil is to convince the world that he doesn't exist. But I think an equally great trick of his is convincing God's people, although through our fickle memories and our feelings, that our God either does not exist or does not care for us. David writes in Psalm 23, 4, that although he walks through the valley of death, he will not fear, for God is with him. I find, however, in my own life that in times of trouble, my thoughts turn instead to nobody loves me, everybody hates me, guess I'll go eat worms. That in the times when I don't see God or feel God, I immediately forget all the things that he's done for me and instead wallow in my pit of self-pity, thinking that nobody's there and nobody cares and I'll just die here in this wilderness. The secret sauce for David's hope if you want to call it that, is also found in the Psalms. He writes in Psalms 22, 1 through 5, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and in you they trusted 
and we're not put to shame. Although David feels discouraged, although God appears not to respond to his prayers, he still proclaims that God is holy and looks to the times when God moved in the past through the lives of his ancestors, to how God time and time again has proved that he is faithful. God gives the same instructions to his people in Deuteronomy 6, uh, 1 through 25, which we'll read together as well. After wandering through the wilderness for many, many years, uh, the Israelites are preparing to enter the land that God had promised them. So God gives them sort of a caution uh, and an instruction as well. So uh, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which, the Lord, which I commanded you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and with honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all the good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after any other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord to your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa, in the verse we read previously. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, all his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers." by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord had promised. And when your son asks you in times to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and of the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has given you? Then you shall say to him, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our, Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteous before us if we are careful to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. See, the Lord knew that when the people of Israel were given the promised land, and we read throughout the rest of uh, the Old Testament anyway. They forgot God. They chased after the local people. 
They were given cities that they did not build and houses full of things they did not obtain and cisterns that were filled that they did not dig and vineyards and orchards that they did not plant. And instead of saying, you know, thank you, God, for all that you've done for us, after years, after generations, they turn to look at what we have done, how mighty we are in our works, how great a thing that we have built, how great is our might and how strong is our land. We don't need this God of Israel. We can, we're free to do whatever we want. I think that's something that we as a nation of America face today, that, you know, the American dream is to pick oneself up by one's bootstraps, to provide for yourself and for your family, to get ahead in life, to succeed, to lay aside riches for retirement, for the end of our days, to pass down great things to those who come after us. And we forget that nothing that we have is provided by our own hands by the Lord who gives generously to all, who reigns on the just and on the unjust alike. So whether in times of plenty or times of hardship, we in our flesh turn away from God, we say, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care for me, or not I am blessed beyond all measure, but look what I have done, look how I have succeeded, look how great my name is to be praised. Am I tempted by pride to forget about what God has done? As much as by discouragement, God's command to his people is to remember him, to remember what he has done for them for generations past, and to recount the testimonies of what he is doing in their lives for generations to come, to place everywhere throughout their sight a reminder of who God is and what he's done, to write it on their hands, to write it on their foreheads, to write it on their doorposts and on their gates, that everywhere they go and everything they do, they can see what God has done. Because when we forget to give credit to God, we easily forget God. But when we remind ourselves, and we remind each other of what the Lord has done, we are encouraged and we are strengthened and we are humbled by the fact that it isn't us, but our God who loves us and provides for us. My father-in-law has a, a great saying. When you ask him, you know, hey, Brother Tom, how are you doing? He says, I'm blessed and highly favored because there's nothing else he could be. He's not good, he's not fine, he's not well. He's blessed and highly favored by a God who cares for us. For us as believers, there is no greater testimony for what God has done in our lives than that of the gospel. For what good is water in the wilderness, or deliverance from slavery, or even manna from heaven, compared to the promise of eternal life and fellowship with God through Jesus Christ? Last month, we spoke about the blood of the Lamb and how Christ died for us so that we could live forever with him. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 sort of sums this up. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. While King David and the Israelite people found hope in discouragement by remembering the work of God in the past, and looking forward to the prophesied coming of the Messiah. 
We as believers today have the testimony of the saints who witnessed Christ's arrival, the promise of eternal life for those who accept him, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us today, which serves as a guarantee of inheritance, according to Paul. For in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. See, the Israelites here in the wilderness where we read were promised a land that God had given him, had, would give to them. They were promised a home, a place of plenty where God would supply all their needs. The Israelites in the land were promised a Messiah who would deliver them from not only the kingdoms that came against them, but from their own sin as well, from their wishy-washiness and their turning to and from God and their constant cycle of ups and downs of righteousness and unrighteousness, of serving God and chasing after idols and false worship. And we today in our own lives, we have the same cycle in our flesh. Paul describes the battle between the spirit and the flesh, how he does the things he doesn't want to do and doesn't do the things that he wants to do. And I'm sure all of us can relate to we start our day out wanting to serve God and to live honorably for him, and we get so distracted, so caught up in just other things that don't matter that we forget who our God is. My wife has joined us today, and she can attest to the times that we've had arguments over just the stupidest things. And it takes taking a moment to step back from what I feel, you know, just this anger towards my wife, and to say, God doesn't want me to act this way. You know, God is a better plan for me. God is a better place for me. And he's given me a relationship with my wife. It's not something that I did to earn or I deserve, but God has decided to set me with the person who compliments me most in this life. Who am I to divide us? What the Lord has joined together, let not man separate. And it takes coming to a realization, or as my mom would say, God hitting me with a two by four, to remember this isn't what it's about. To remember that God has a better thing for us, that he is with me. And our testimony serves as a great reminder, not only for ourselves when we're distracted by things, not only for other believers when I can say, you know, hey, Brother John, Sister Cheyenne, whoever else whose name I don't remember, this is what God has done for me. This is what God has done in me. This is who I am now that I was not before. This is my God, and this is your God. And if you profess to follow him, he would want you to be the person that you're acting like today. But he's made you a new creation in Christ. So whether filled with pride or disheartened by our circumstances, let us seek to remember through the word of our testimony what God has done. And let us encourage one another through the word of that same testimony so that where one might stumble or fall, we are there to gather them and to lift them up and to build them up and to remind them that God is faithful and to encourage them to good works. And another thing, too, is that the best witness that we have for non-believers 
is the testimony of Christ in our lives. For I who was once dead am now alive. I who was once lost without hope now have hope. I who was once discouraged and downtrodden and afraid and depressed, I can face each day with a boldness and with a faith and with love and with kindness and with joy because Christ is the joy of my salvation. You know, no matter how hard today gets, no matter how sick I feel in my body, no matter how sad or cloudy the day might be, it is not worthy to be compared to the joy that is coming, to the glory of meeting our Christ face to face. Let us therefore cling tightly to the confession of our hope, the testimony of Jesus' saving work in our lives, so that we do not waver when our memories, our feelings, or the lies of the enemy deceive us into thinking that God is not present, that he's not loving or not even real. When one of us is tempted by doubt or pride, let us gather together to share the testimony of what God has done with our brothers and our sisters, to encourage one another and to remind us that our God is faithful to all generations. And let us be prepared, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the hope that is in us. So that if just anyone comes up to you and says, hey, Brother Conrad, why are you so joyful? You just came off of you know, a sickness or, or doubt or, or, you know, a dryness of the finances. You know, how can you face each day with joy? How can you be so encouraged that you might be able to respond and to say, it's because my God has done so many things for me that I can point to the years of my life where he's been faithful time and time again. My wife and I moved here from Tennessee five years ago, almost, and we didn't have an apartment. We had you know, one car that Cheyenne couldn't even drive. We didn't have, I, I, I had a job, but Cheyenne didn't have a place to work or anything. And we're just like, all right, God, you know, this is where you want us to go. We'll go. And we were staying with my brother until we could find a place. And I kid you not, we were there for less than two weeks before I signed the lease on our apartment below the rent value with a closed-in garage, which for folks from Tennessee is a blessing in Wisconsin winter. Uh, we were able to buy a car from a random stranger for within our budget, and it has lasted us without any trouble for this last five years almost. It had all all wheel drive and, and tires that could you know keep us safe in the snow that my wife could drive as well. He provided Cheyenne with you know some babysitting work. He gave us a great church to tie into within weeks of starting here. He has blessed us beyond all measure. I can't help but say that I'm blessed and highly favored. And that's just the last five years of my life. Like, I've got 25, almost 26 years now where I could tell you stories of when I was depressed and God brought me hope, when I was afraid and God gave me strength, when I had chased after so many things of this world and God shut the doors one by one so that I wouldn't choose anything other than him and brought me back to himself and delivered me from not only the attacks of the enemy, but from my own selfishness and my own lies and my own desires. I used to struggle with, with pornography and, and, and addictions to, you know, looking at, you know, the images of people on, on the internet. And I don't desire those things anymore. It's not that through my self-control I was able to stop. God delivered me. So now even just the thought of it brings me disgust because it's not my wife. It's not the relationship that God has designed for me. And I can't say that it was my own power because I tried for years and couldn't get anywhere. It is only by the grace of God that I'm free. 
It is only by his power. It is only by his strength. And church history is filled with accounts of the believers sharing their testimony from its establishment in the book of Acts until the present day. I used to think as a kid, you know, we'd invite, you know, kids or teens or, you know, folk up to, to share their testimony during service or especially during a revival. I used to think, I don't have a testimony. I've been in church my whole life. I never did anything strange. I don't, you know, have a history of drugs or, or alcohol or sleeping around with other people. You know, I, I'm a good kid. I don't have a testimony to share. But even in that, that goodness, even in that, that hedge of protection that God raised around me and having parents who loved me and a family that was always there, that is a testimony in and of itself, especially in this day and age where families are divided and, and broken, that I had a mother who was there to listen and to care and wasn't perfect, but gave me love and showed me what a relationship was like or what it should be like. And even though I had a father who didn't really connect with me, he provided for my family, for all of us. So I didn't have to worry about going hungry or being cold or, or without a house. I had a place to stay and I had food to eat. And I had a family who showed me what love was like. And when I came to know the Lord, he showed me so much more, so much greater as a life with Christ than anything that I could imagine before it. Because the greatest testimony that we have as believers is the change in our lives from before we knew Christ to after we know him. And some may have said it's like a night and day flicking of a switch. You know, once I was in darkness, now I am in light. You know, the Apostle Paul had an encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus where the Lord appeared and shone, you know, a light around him and he was blinded for days. And God spoke to him and said, you know, you're doing the wrong thing. I want you to be on my side, not against me. And I could say in my life that it wasn't, you know, quite that dramatic. You know, it took years of choosing to trust God. But the more that I come to know him and the more my eyes are opened, I can see even before I chose him, even before I claimed to follow him, he was there in my life. He was protecting me from the worst things that I could have chosen, and he was preparing a way for me that I could come to know him. I think it's in 1 John somewhere, I didn't prepare to my notes, but it says that we love God because he first loved us. That I can't put credit on even my own choosing to know God for the changing power in my life, but that God had prepared the way long before I knew him, long before I accepted him, so that when I did choose him, he could reveal all that he had done. Uh, if you're interested later, you could read Acts chapter 26. Uh, this is the story of Paul's testimony, basically. He shares before, uh, I believe it's a King Agrippa there in uh, Jerusalem, of how he came to Christ and how he who was the strongest persecutor of the saints became their strongest proclaimer of the gospel. And I would like to close in prayer uh, as each one of us thinks about our own testimony. How does my life compare to who I was before I knew Christ? Do we now rejoice in times of trial, knowing that it brings forth spiritual maturity, or are we overcome by despair? Do we display hope during times of suffering, knowing that this temporary suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is revealed when we meet Jesus face to face? Or do we wallow in that pit of self-pity, thinking that there's no way out, that I'm here in the valley of the shadow of death and I'm going to stay here? Or can we say, 
Like David says, I will not fear, for God is with me. Where we are discouraged and downhearted, and the enemy attempts to deceive us into thinking God is not with us, will we proclaim, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony that we have as believers, for the testimony of those who came before us, and for the work that you continue to do in the lives of those who come after us. Help us not to forget that your faithful love endures to all generations. Help us not to be so caught up in the things that are right before our eyes that we miss the bigger picture that you've been there the whole time. Lord, I pray that we would encourage one another, that we would not forsake gathering together and lifting one another up and exhorting our brothers and sisters to love and to good works by the testimony that God has placed in our lives. And Lord, when the enemy comes against us to deceive us and to discourage us and to cause us to doubt that our God is even there, that he even loves us, help us remember who you are. Help us proclaim to all generations, to all of our friends, our family, those around us, that we are blessed, that we are highly favored, that God has called us and set us apart and saved our lives. And we do not have to despair in this world because even in the worst things of this world, it cannot compare to the glory that you've promised us, a home and eternity with heaven. Jesus said to his disciples, in my father's house, there are many mansions and I go there to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would not have told you that our God honors his promises, that he does not deal falsely with his people, that he's not a man that he would lie or change his mind, but that he is faithful to unchanging, to everlasting, he has promised us so many things and proven his promises through his work in our lives. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your work in our lives, through your salvation, through your grace, through the testimony that we have to reclaim that our God is alive, that he is real, that he is at work in every one of us. I pray that you protect us, that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we respond bond and thanksgiving to your blessings and not doubt for that which we do not have, but we would be content in all circumstances for Christ has given us strength. We pray this and we thank you in your son's name. Amen.